This morning, we continue in our study of the book of Ephesians, and as we do that, um, today we, we enter into chapter 2, which is that rich portion of Scripture that talks about the gospel, the good news, that Jesus Christ has rescued us from our sins. Now, now to give us a, a proper framework, think about where we have come to this point. After having prayed um, about the hope of, of God and His glorious um, desire to grant grace to sinners like you and I, right? Like that entire section of chapter 1 was just about the praise of God and the, the glory He deserves for the, the magnificent kindness that He has expressed to those who cannot earn or deserve it. We have wealth in Jesus Christ. But before we get to that good news... The whole point is to speak of the bad news, because the good news is not so great if the bad news is not that bad. But the depth by which the bad news is really that bad, I think magnifies the glory of God in Christ and makes the good news all the more sweeter and more amazing and absolutely something that only God, our God, in the scriptures would do. Um, to give you an idea, really, um, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, but I wanted to give you um, the entire section, or the entire sentence at least. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is just one long sentence, and it, it is both about the old condition, being spiritually dead to God, to God. I guess I want to double emphasize that. I don't know what happened there. Right, spiritually dead to God to God, right? Um, but the idea being that we are spiritually dead to God, that's the old condition. And that's what we'll look at this morning, verses 1 through 3. It's the bad news. And then the new position is that we are now made alive to God because of Jesus Christ in verses 4 through 7. I just want you to understand and appreciate this is just one singular sentence, one thought in the apostle's mind, one thought inspired by the Holy Spirit to be God's word for us. We'll be looking and emphasizing our spiritual death um, this morning. And so the old condition, oh no, did I mess things up? What, what, what is this one? What, what is happening right there? We'll ignore that one, right? We'll just go straight. So we'll be looking at the spiritually dead to God, and, and we want to keep our outline simple, right? It is just dead to sin or dead in sin, um, and then pursuing sin and loving sin. This is the description of the spiritually dead, and, and I think that's what Paul, the apostle, is trying to give us. That's what the Holy Spirit would like to convict us of, is to recognize how very dead the spiritually dead are. In verses 1 to 3. Let me read that to you, and then let's pray, and let's dive right in. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as um, we dive into um, the depth of our own sin and depravity, 
I pray that you would open eyes, maybe some for the first time today, that sinners might recognize what it means that they are sinners. Not sinners because they occasionally sin and make mistakes, but because we are born in our iniquity and sins. We are by nature children of wrath. And from our very core being, what comes most naturally to us is rebellion and disobedience. Lord, help us to recognize how, how dead we are in sin without Christ. And thereby give us that bad news so that you would prepare us for the glorious good news that we can be made alive in Jesus Christ. So Lord, as we explore um, the depths of the darkness of the human soul, Lord, remind us again of the good news that you love and you care for us enough to send your son to take our place in judgment. So Lord, would you open the scriptures to us this morning in a way that really helps enliven the truth of the gospel? Would you open the hearts of some that are here or that are listening that need to bow their knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to turn from their own sin, and to stop trying to atone for themselves, but to look for Jesus Christ, the Lamb that can actually take away their sins and cleanse their conscience once for all. We praise you because your grace is good. In fact, it is gloriously good. And we want to enjoy that. But convince us, Lord, of our death, our spiritual death, without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. So that's our outline, dead in sin, pursuing sin, loving sin. But let's begin with the first. And this is really the, 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 the thesis I don't know why I can't say thesis. Thesis statement, right? This is the umbrella statement that kind of launches everything else in verses 1 through 3, and that's this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, the connective word and takes us back to the prayer that Paul has, uh, has said, or, or to the prayer first, and then to what we saw, was it last week? or It was last week, right? Verses 17 to 20, but if you look back at chapter 1, verses 17 to 20, this is what it says there. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your, our hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? See, the, the, it connects to that because if we want to talk about, right, what is the hope of our calling? What is the, the wealth that we are in God's eyes as a glorious inheritance? What, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us? You can't explore the, the wonder of how good and how excellent and how glorious God is to us unless you recognize where we've come from. So this is the scriptures explaining to us that without Christ or before Christ, we were spiritually bankrupt, more than bankrupt, we were dead. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Um, the term dead is not a confusing term. 
It's not, a, it's not an unusual term for dead. It's, it's the normal Greek term for being dead. It means that something that could walk around no longer can walk around. It means something that had a heart beating no longer has a heart that's beating. It, that, that anything or everything that we might say kind of eats, breathes, right, continues to exist in a manner that is animate, that demonstrates that there's life in it. None of those signs of life are present. It is necros. It is dead. Stone dead. You could be physically alive, but according to this verse, you can be spiritually dead. In fact, every human being is born spiritually dead. See, death means that there is a complete deficiency, an absolute inability. There's no capacity to mimic life. Deadness is not temporary. Deadness is not relative. It's an absolute. Right? It's one of those absolute terms. I give, I use that as an illustration all the time, and you've heard it from me probably, right? That if I didn't show up and someone says, hey, what happened to Pastor Nam? And they say, well, he's sick. That's a relative term. Because you might even go, dude, how sick is he? Like, you can just come to church and, and, and preach. Like, that's not, that doesn't take much work. Shame on you for thinking that, by the way. Like, isn't that funny? I'm judging you in my own imagination. Like, I created the story and I'm just, anyway, right? Like, that, those that were sick is relative. Like, you can be really sick, terminally sick, or you can be kind of sick. There, there's not a kind of dead. There's not a relatively dead. They're not a mostly dead. They're just dead. Spiritually speaking, though you are physically capable, spiritually you are dead. And what this means is if we were physically dead, we'd have no ability to connect, commune, to relate to other living beings, right? So if we are spiritually dead, what does Scripture mean by this? It means that we have no ability to commune, to communicate, to relate to a living God. We are literally cut off from, our, from the very get-go, from the moment that we exist. We are spiritually dead. No capacity to do anything that is of spiritual life at all. And we were dead, it says, the rest of this, this verse. You're dead in the trespasses and sins. I like how the ESV translates, right, um, trespasses and sins with a definite article. See the the? It's kind of awkward English, right? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. Is because it's trying, to, it's trying to take all of that and trying to emphasize that it's not particular trespasses and sins, but it's the entire concept. It is all of it, and that you are dead in all of it. See, the, the, the construction there, the, the grammatical construction there, um, probably means that, that you are dead in the sphere or in the accompanying circumstances, right, of your spiritual death. In other words, trespasses and sins is the cesspool in which you are found dead. It's not just that you have died, you know? You've died in this beautiful green field, and there's life all around you, and you happen to be the only dead thing there. No, you are dead, right, in the vat of deadness. The very things that could kill you, trespass and sins, and can trespass and sins kill you? Of course, because even Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Trespass refers to stepping outside the boundaries that, that are set, the limits that are set. So it's like saying, do not cross. And you say, dude, I'm just going to cross, right? 
Do not do this. And I, I, just, I just trespass. I don't care, right? I do what I want to do. Sins, that term, right, that refers to missing the mark. But I want you to make sure that you understand something. Because that is a literal definition of the Old Testament term for sin. Missing the mark. But for me, that kind of sounds like, you know, I have a capacity to hit the mark, right? Like it's like archery. Like every once in a while I hit the mark and occasionally I miss the mark. It almost sounds like there's accidental missing here. But the concept of the term means that you miss the mark always. That you are always off point. That you are calibrated in such a way that you go, okay, I see what is right. I'm going to do what is right. And as you head there, you veer off course every time. It means that you are broken and that you have no capacity to do what is right. Trespassing sins have the weight of death upon them as its penalty. But the way that this verse is constructed, it doesn't say that you died because of your trespass and sins. I think it's saying that you were dead already. And then the surrounding circumstance of your life is the very things that you consistently continue to pour into yourself. The thing that could kill you, you're already dead, but you keep consuming that which would kill you anyway. All you know is darkness and darkness. All you know is death to death. And the thing that we, we want to make sure that we understand here is that the reason why we speak of trespass and sins is that it, trespass and sins don't accidentally happen. Both of those terms speak to an intentional act of defiance, an intentional act of sin. This is our natural environment. We constantly choose sin. And you say, well, I don't, I don't like every day, right, in every possible moment, do something violent or crazy, wicked. Th that may be true. Because when we talk about the, the doctrine of the total depravity of humankind, we don't mean that you always do the most wicked thing that could come to mind. What we mean by that is your capacity for wickedness is endless. And by nature, by nature, you choose sin regularly. Absolutely and repeatedly. It is what defines us. This is our natural being. We, again, we, we sin because we're sinners. Right? It's not an act of sin that made us sinners. Like, oh man, if I never sinned, right, I wouldn't be sinning. That, that part's kind of true, but the point is the nature in us is that we are sinners by nature. And that means that the reason why we sin, the reason why our cute little babies, the first thing they say is no to mom and dad, right? It is. They're just naturally rebellious. Beautiful and so cute and adorable, but naturally rebellious. Why? Because that's what they are. They are made in our image. They, they bear, right, the, the same kind of uh, this fallen nature as Adam. And as a result of that, they are cut off like we are cut off. Matthew 12, 35, Jesus says that the good person out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. He says this, but the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. It's what's in the heart. Isaiah 64, 6 says, we've all become like one that is unclean and all our, all our righteous deeds, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, right? The best that we do is still self-centered and sinful. You say, well, you know, I, I, I try to help the poor. That's a good thing. I, I think that's a good and honorable thing. But unless you do it unto the glory of God and Jesus Christ, you've just done a temporal thing, Right? 
I'm nice and kind to people that have, you know, um, uh, you know, weaknesses, etc. That's a good thing. That's a compassionate thing. That's, that's image bearing. But again, unless you do that to the glory of Jesus Christ and for the purpose of God's intention and glory, right? It, it, it is at best polluted garments. And that doesn't negate any of the sin that naturally entangles itself into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds, and into our actions. So this is what we are without Christ. We're cut off from life. We're spiritually dead. We're cut off from Christ, so there's no hope. We're cut off from every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, which Paul talked about in chapter 1. We're cut off and incapable of, of rendering any kind of help or inducement to receive new life. We bring nothing but hopeless inability. That's the bad news. We are spiritually dead. And for the gospel to be good news... This needs to be embraced. We have to be convinced of this. If there's a part of you that thinks, okay, if I just hang on and I try to clean up my life a little bit, then I'm more savable, you're absolutely mistaken. And that, that road leads to hell as much as the crazy, wicked road leads to hell. Right? You can be a moralist and find yourself ultimately in God's judgment. As much as if you are a libertarian, you just do whatever the heck you want to do. Because we need to be convinced that there is no helping ourselves. We are absolutely, spiritually, and hopelessly dead in our sins. See, that's what we mean by dead in sin, right? Well, the second point we want to see in verse 2 is that as a characteristic function of us being dead in our sins, right, we are busy pursuing sin. It's not like we are completely inactive in our deadness, if you want to think about it in those terms. We're like the walking dead. We do stuff, and we do stuff that promotes more sin, right? Oh, wait, let's back up here. Verse 2, in which you once walked. So let me pick it up from verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So he begins with this idea of walk. He just had said, you're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked. Walk, right, is used metaphorically throughout the scriptures um, as, a, as a way of talking about your manner of living, your lifestyle maybe right? Certainly your identity. It, it, the idea is that you move from point A to B, but how you get there says something about your character, your personhood, right? What you value and what, what you're going to stop off to enjoy. I mean, this is, so the walk is like your lifestyle, your, 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 your personhood, your character, all of that, right? This is how you live. And without Christ, our walk was dom- dominated, right? by two particular influences that come up in chapter in verse 2. And one is the world, and the second one is Satan, right? So he says, you used to walk, right, in those trespasses and sins, and this is what it means, following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. Now, the ESV is trying to give us a translation, like it's using the word following, but there's no verb that is given to us there. Um, it's translating um, what is really just a preposition, kata, which means according to. According to, meaning like manner or the standard of. So 
so think of it this way, right? You once walked in your trespass and sins as a dead man, as a dead woman, following, not, not, you know, so take away the verb and just say, according to the course of this world, in a manner that is appropriate or that is, that it, that is connected to the way that the world lives, right? We once walked following the standard or the manner of this world. The world was our guide, right, to identity and lifestyle and pursuit. The course of this world, that phrase is literally the aeons, the, the ages of this world cosmos. It, and it means at once that the cosmos, the world, is the world, not just the material world, but the ethical world, the spiritual world. It is the satanically organized system that hates and opposes everything that is godly. So that's the worldly kind of world, right? Not just the earth. And by aeon, by ages, it's talking about a season of time. And I think what is, what is meant there, and the reason why the ESV translates the course of this world, is meant that there is a certain pattern, a certain culture, that at any given moment that the world, right, depending on where you live, what time period you live in, right, that they will place upon you certain things. And, of course, all of them kind of semi-overlap. Whether it's, you know, having to become rich or desiring for wealth, or whether it's a desiring sexual fulfillment, desiring this thing or that thing, or prominence or popularity. I mean, some of those things carry in every culture, but the point is there is a culture that this world places upon us. And he's saying, you walked in your trespasses and sins in accord with the way that the world does its business and life. He is saying that the world, as a system, has a set of beliefs, values, and offers a certain hope. And see, that, that's the problem, right? You're not just spiritually dead, but you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You used to walk in trespasses and sins, and you used to follow the course of the world. You used to follow whatever the, the world says is the thing that you should be pursuing. The world helps shape your values and your ambitions and your hopes. And all of it, empty, not appropriate, unrighteous, and has nothing to do with who God is. I mean, what do you hope for? I mean, what do you hope for in the next, like, I don't know, next year? And if it's merely the same thing that your unbelieving neighbors and coworkers hope for, there's something that is off with that, right? It's, it's not wrong to, to hope, right, that certain good things happen, that you get a better job or that you get a job, right? That you get married in a few years, you know? That you get a girlfriend, right? It's not, it's not inappropriate to hope and desire some of those things. But man, if that is the main ambition of your life, that is where your heart gravitates to first, that is more about the system of this world and about seeking out those things that you think you need to be, quote-unquote, happy in this life than about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because God has a sovereign plan for you, and it may not look like everyone else's plan, right? But we, without Christ, we're captive to the way that the world thinks about everything. We once lived according to that manner or that standard of the temporal values of this world. And this is a mark. 
This is one of the marks of spiritual death. The second, right, is in verse 2, is not just following the world, excuse me, but following the evil one, following the evil one. He says, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, secondly, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's not that you're just spiritually, that you're fed spiritual death by the influence of the world, but also by the influence of satanic powers. Listen, I know we're in the 21st century. We're in the 21st century, right? Man, I always get confused with like how centuries are like a century ahead. Right, we're in the 21st century, I think. Right? <laughs> but if we're in the 21st century, right, we are modernists. Right? We have, we're, we're making computers that think for themselves, which may not be that great of an idea. But nevertheless, right, like we think that, that everything that we make can be explained technologically right, by a series of codes or by a mechanical placement. That's the way that we think about stuff. And we're so, we're so modernistic that we believe that there is like very little to this idea of demonic powers or that Satan is more of an idea. I mean, you hear that sometimes. The scriptures don't attest to that. The scriptures make it clear that there is a prince of the power of the air. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about Satan. And again, it is according to, right? So in a manner that has been influenced by the ruler, that's what prince means, of the power of the air. I know that's a weird phrase. Um, but it would help us to understand that air is not the, the neutral, you know, space, uh, material, you know, kind of I know, expanse that we think of. When I say like, hey, you know, um, what do you think about the air? You probably think, well, it's important, you know, I need to breathe it, right? We don't think much of it. It's just kind of a neutral thing. But in the, the old world, the idea of air, and even as Paul uses it here, that's the domain of spirits. I think it's partially connected to the idea of the vocabulary that is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Hebrew and the Greek, right, for spirit. If you're talking about a spiritual being, you're talking about, you know, the nephesh or the, the pneuma. You're talking about terminology that means spiritual or spirit. There's an actual spirit. But it also can be translated in its right context, the wind or even breath. Right? So if you think about it, there's a connection in the old Right? Ancient thinking in their vocabulary between that which is immaterial, like the airish stuff, right? And breath and wind and spiritual things. So by saying that there is a prince of the power of the air, it's saying there's a prince who holds uh, authority, that's the power part, in the realm that is the realm of the spirits. And so here, as in other writings that are not in scripture, right? The Jewish people thought of the the realm of the air as the place of the spirits. We might think of it as the place of the underworld or something like that, right? So if if we translate it differently, we might say something like the prince of the powers of the underworld, right? You're walking following him. But the idea being that it is spiritual powers that are at work. They're demonic forces that are at work. And yes, they don't need to show up and possess somebody to freak us out. No, they could influence, like, you know, the way that our, our country thinks, the way that those countries think, the way that the world thinks, and influence them towards everything that is anti-God and anti-Scripture. 
1 John 5, 19, the second part says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. See, that's, that's exactly what I think um, um, Ephesians 2 here is talking about. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of, of Christ, who is the image of God. See, this, this is, right, this is the prince of the power of the air. This is the evil one working his, with his authority, right, in the, the spiritual dimensions, and in the point being that we had once lived according to his influence, according to his power. In fact, it, it makes that more explicit in the second part of verse 2, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, that spirit, the prince of the power of the air, that spiritual being is constantly and regularly working, actively working towards our disobedience, towards the sin of humanity, to, to trap them, to blind them, etc. And I'll, I'll remind you of that kind of that, that Hebraic formula, right? Son of something means that you draw your nature from that something. And so it was blasphemy for Jesus to say that he was the singular son of God, right? To say that he bore nature one oneness so he shared something of the nature of god the father that was blasphemy to those that heard it right and then remember jesus calls uh, james and john sons of thunder and what he means is that man their personality like it's like they draw their nature from thunderous things they're boisterous and loud and aggressive right so here sons of disobedience mean that they by nature are deliberate in their disobedience this is satanically fueled. They, they continue to walk in disobedience. They are known for their disobedience, right? They're, they're characterized by their disobedience because they draw their nature from a natural instinct to disobey, to rebel. And Satan fuels that. I, I just want you to understand, sinners don't inadvertently sin, right, because of Satan. The devil made me do it. The devil does want you to do it, and he influences you that way. But it turns out that we do that deliberately because that is according to our nature. We are sons of disobedience already, and Satan seems to have a good way of kind of churning that, that deadness, that spiritual death, and continuing that so that unbelievers are blinded to even the goodness of the gospel. It's the pattern of the world. It's the influence of satanic power. And what you have there then is a formula that it adds up this way. We are already dead, absolutely dead, in our trespasses and sins. And then you add to that this intentionality in terms of living according to the world. There's this willingness to be influenced by satanic powers, thoughts, and hopes, right? And what you end up with is not just a case for judgment, oh man, that sinner is such a sinner. He deserves absolute judgment. It's more than that. It, it means that for that individual, because that person is not a theoretical, that person is you. That person is me. That person is our loved ones who do not know Christ. That is all of us. And for all of us, the final adding up, the sum of all of these parts is that there is absolutely no hope for spiritual life. No, no, you can't shape them unto salvation. You, you can't train them. 
in righteous things well enough that all of a sudden they'll be saved. You can't, you can't influence them, right, in ways that, that, that are eternal without supernatural help. I mean, there's supernatural, you know, there's supernatural enmity on the other side influencing every human heart towards the things of the world, towards the things of sat- satanic desires, towards all. There is plenty to kill us time and time again. There is no hope for us apart from Jesus Christ. So, I mean, the, the bad news just keeps getting worse and worse, right? We started with the idea of being dead in sin. And then the fact that, that even in our deadness, we were pursuing sin. And in verse 3, if, if all of that is not enough, it lets us know that the, that, you know, on, the cherry on top of all of this is that we were always loving sin, right? We're always loving sin. Look at verse 3. Among whom, talking about the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Not only are the unbelieving committed to conformity to the world, to satanic powers, and to continuing on in an existence of spiritual death, But according to verse 3, they do it because they enjoy it. They do it because they enjoy it. We did it because we enjoyed it, right? We we were once enslaved to lust. He says, among whom, the first part of verse 3, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. To live in the passions of our flesh is... uh, uh, the scriptures are using flesh in the sense not, not just of our physical flesh, but of that which uh, um, can uh, exemplify our human existence in this fallen world. In other words, there's things that we think we desire, right? We have appetites for certain things, and we are enslaved to that. We lived in the passions. If there was anything to the spiritually dead, whatever looked like life was the pursuit of those things that they most wanted, the, most, the things that they most cherished. And the things that they most cherished and wanted were the things that gratified their own appetites. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about enemies of the cross. And in an interesting description of the enemies of the cross, 3.19 says this, their, destruction, their end is destruction. We can understand that. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. The God is their belly is the weird one, right? And it means that they are enslaved to their belly, to their appetites, to their cravings, or we could use the term lust, right? To their passions, to their lust. They're living out, right, the very things that they want for themselves. And it matters not, it matters not the consequence, because as far as they're concerned, this is what they're supposed to be living for the satiation of their own appetites, of their own lust. Lust, right, like passion, is a neutral term in and of itself, right? Because we translate the term lust when we mean that it's sinful, but we could also translate it as passionate or, you know, exuberant if we mean it for something that is good. Passion is the same, right? You can have a passion for things that are noble and excellent and wanted to see justice done, wanted to see mercy expressed, right? 
And you can have passion for things that are self-centered, self-seeking, and is really about to, to feed your own fleshly desires. That's what it speaks to. Once we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. See, carrying out desires of body, that would be the physical act of sinfulness, right? And the mind. You don't even have to carry out the physical act. You can imagine it. You could use your creativity. You could give what God has given to you as a spark of creative ability, and you could, in your mind, examine all the different ways that you could sin, how you could satisfy your fleshly desires and inclinations, right? We could do all of that. And we would do that, and we did do that without the rescue of Jesus Christ. And let me say this. I think our first inclination when we, when we talk about enslaving passions or enslaving lust is sexual desire, right? That, that's kind of where we naturally go to. But I just want you to understand that passion and desire is far greater than merely sexual, right? Um, that, that can be a room for, for you know, sin and for um, the dehumanization of other human beings, etc. But But more... More than that, illicit passions and, and lusts that consume and cons- control our affections, right, can be in the area of, like, influence or popularity, right? Um, what do other people think about you? Or what authority do you have? How much power do you have amongst people, right? It could be for just pleasurable diversions. I, I, I just want to experience life. And by that, you mean that you just want to enjoy things. Or that you are, you are, you know, all the way in for sports or for entertainments or for travel, etc. It could be the allurements of success or leisure or wealth. I mean, these, all these idolatries, right? They're demonstrated in our souls because they consume us. How do we know they're idolatries? Because if we desire these things and we're denied them, how do we respond? Do you get envious? Do you get angry? Do you get dejected? Do you demonstrate fierce discontentment? I mean, all of those are indications that these are idols of our souls. These are the things that we love. These are things that we're enslaved to. These are the pleasures that we must have in order to be happy. You would be shocked how many people, right, will abandon faith under the expression I need this to be happy. I need this to be happy. Happy in what terms? Well, in the terms of this world, in the terms of my own desires, in, in the terms of what I hope that things would be, right? Not necessarily in the terms of what God has said would bring delight and contentment and joy. And as a reminder that, you know, that we're not talking about those people, Right? We're talking about us. Paul says, and we're by nature, or he says, carry out the desires of the body and mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are all included in this. We all once lived in this. Right? That's the first phrase that he says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived. We, we lived in, in these desires. We lived in these false passions. And as a reminder to every Christian, you are not that far from your sinfulness. And the only reason why that is not your craving, that is not you know, your passion, that is no longer your idol, is because of Christ in you. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and every Christian should etch this into their souls, is a reminder of how wicked humanity can be, but that every Christian is rescued from that wickedness. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And for some of us, our hearts gravitate towards, Amen, close the book, sermon is over. But verse 11 says, And such were some of you. Everything that is listed. He's saying examples of those, right? Those kind of people have actually been redeemed, and they're now one of us kind of people. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this is the only way that the spiritually dead can find life. The whole point of being enslaved to various lusts and passions is that the spiritually dead are captive to their own self-worshipping idols. They worship at the, the trinity of me, myself, and I. It is all for myself, and I can't see the value in anything except that it serves my own desires. The second part, right, of verse 3, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's not a lot to be said about this. We've already talked about how by nature... We are sinners, spiritually dead, pursuing sin, loving sin. That is what we are by nature without Christ. That's what some of you are today if you have not repented and turned to Christ alone, all right, for the forgiveness of sins and salvation. You're by nature children of wrath, meaning the, the consequence is that the nature of sin and death leads us to the nature of being under the wrath of God. You are children See, this is the crazy part, right? It, it's saying that you are children in the sense that this is what you have been raised to be. The wrath and destruction is the natural course that you have raised yourself into. By nature, you are children still growing and building up the wrath that you will receive. And when Scripture talks about God's holy wrath, His judgment upon the wicked, it does it in two senses. It does it in, in, in a sense of the present wrath of God, Places like John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It remains on him. Unbelievers are currently under the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Presently, God is pouring out his wrath, right? But then there is that future wrath. Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And Romans 2, 5. But because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, there's a sense in which God's wrath, right? His wrath is poured out presently on all sinners. And there's, there is the deeper and greater effect, the eternal effect of his wrath in the day of judgment that is to come. That is all of God, right? And all of his, his anger towards sinfulness. And so those that are by, by nature children of wrath, 
That is every sinner. That is every human being outside of Christ. And then you see, you notice, like the rest of mankind. This is true not just for, for you or for me or for those kind of people. It's just for every human being that's a human being. This is what we have inherited in the sin nature that comes from Adam and Eve. If you are a human being, this is what you experience in life. And to embrace this is the only way for you to understand that the gospel is good, that God is that magnificent, that his, that, that his love for us is so undeserved. Like, Because if, if all of this that I'm talking about, if you need to whittle that down and you're kind of like, well, we're mostly good, but a little bit of bad, you don't need a Savior, right? You don't need atonement. You got it covered. You just need to sprinkle a little more of your goodness juice on yourself. But if this is true, if Scripture is accurate, there is no hope for you. There is no hope for me apart from the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Every, every other option, every other self-help option will end up as bankrupt as everything else. And yeah, you might, you might be able to string together a few enjoyable moments in this life, but the wrath of God will come because we are by nature children of wrath, as is the rest of all of mankind. The appetites and the delights reveal their true nature. They are dead in trespassing sins, pursuing sin, and loving sins. But see, this is the bad news. But this is not all the news. The good news follows the bad. Let me read you our passage again, verses 1 to 3, and uh, without saying too much about it, verses 4 and 5 tells us how it's possible that the spiritually dead could be made alive. First one says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Wow, it's like, like the Lord wanted you to, to hear that home, right? <laughs> Just to kind of bring that home. Listen, you have an opportunity, if you have not already done so, you have an opportunity to recognize your own sinfulness and turn to Christ for salvation. So long as it's called today, you have a chance to be free of the bad news of sin. And not, not because you deserve it, not because you're better than some others, not because you are a little bit better than some of those people out there, but simply because though you are spiritually dead to God, God's love is sufficient. His grace is enough. And Christ's death can once for all Pay for the full price of your entire lifetime of sin. You can be forgiven. That, that truth and that, that wondrous reality is what we celebrate now as we transition into a time around the Lord's table. We are spiritually dead to God, but if we have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are made alive to him through Christ.